0: Hey, uh, if we've never met before, my name is Matt Velasco. I have the privilege of being the high school pastor here at Grace Church. You see, we say something around these parts all the time, and I say this each and every week because it is a part of who we are, and that is that we say that tonight is the best night of the week. And we believe that tonight is the best night of the week not because you get free food, you get to hang out with your friends, because we get to have fun. Those things are all great. But the reason why tonight is the best night of the week is because God has a special way of showing up in funny ways, or a funny way of showing up in special ways here uh, at Next on Wednesday nights, or whatever youth ministry you might normally go to. It's not just a Grace Church Next Ministries thing. And so if you're here for the first time, second time, third time, maybe you're a little skeptical, just know I'm so glad you're here. I would love to meet you. How many of you really like reading books? Raise your hand if you love reading books. Like you are a book reader. So I, I love reading books. I really, I really quite genuinely think, I can actually see now, I, I, I really quite genuinely love reading books. But most pastors, shh, most pastors love reading nonfiction books. They love reading Bob Goff. They love reading Matt Chandler, Francis Chan, Jonathan Pekluda. They like reading those sorts of books. And don't get me wrong. Those books are good. I've read most of their books. But that's not the type of reading I like to do. I like to read fantasy books. How many of you like fantasy books? Right? Like my favorite type of book is like a 1,000-page just epic fantasy, story, with complex magic systems, mystical creatures. Like, that is the best. Brandon Sanderson, anyone. Brandon Sanderson. Okay, one person. You're my favorite. Come on now. So good. That's what I like. Now, Stories, and the reason why we like stories so much, and the reason why I love fantasy so much, is because so often there are twists and there are turns, and you get to the end of the book, and you are left hanging on the edge of a cliff, right? We call those cliffhangers, and that's part of what keeps us going back, right? I mean, you could think any Harry Potter book, I'm a Christian, I have not yet read those books, obviously, but if I had read those books... Like, again, if I had, the end of them always leave you like, I want more, right? Whatever books it is, Lord of the Rings, all of them, you want more. And in fact, how many of you have heard of a book called The Canterbury Tales? Anyone? You had to read it. You chose to read it. If you chose to read it, you're, you're crazy. If you had to read it, I relate to you. The Canterbury Tales is a collection of tales, And it follows people going on a religious pilgrimage. And each of these people going on a religious pilgrimage, they don't have names like Fred and Jeff or whatever else it might be. They're names like the host or the partner or the physician. And that is who they are. Now, there is one specific tale that when I think of the ending of a story leaving you on the edge of the cliff or the end of the story leaving you in shock and awe, there's one of those in the Canterbury Tales. And so I want to give you a little bit of background on it as I pull my chair up. <clears throat> so essentially, it's called the Pardoner's Tale, right? The Pardoner's Tale. It's part of the Canterbury Tales. Essentially, what you get is you get these religious pilgrims that are the main characters of this whole book called the Canterbury Tales. And they're on a pilgrimage to Canterbury not isn't that what the horse tracks are called, Canterbury? They're going from Duluth to the horse tracks. They're not actually doing that. I thought that would be funny, Jake. No one laughed. Jake didn't even laugh. Where are you, Jake? How dare you? Just kidding. So they're on a on a religious pilgrimage to Canterbury, and the physician, who's one of the characters, had just told a tragic It had everyone crying. It had everyone weeping. And then the host, another character, turns to the partner and says, hey, why don't you tell a happy, joyful story? And the whole rest of the pilgrims object and say, we don't want a happy, good story. We want a moral story. And so the pardoner begins to tell a moral story. He begins to tell a story about the morality of human beings. And it's this story that he tells. He tells the story of three lawless young men that go on a search for death. They think that they can find death. And if they can find him, they think they will be able to kill him. And as they are searching, they meet an old man who tells them that death can be found at the foot of an oak tree. And so off they go to that tree. But there, instead of finding death, they find eight bags or bushels of gold. With death now out of their mind and greed taking center stage, they decide to sleep there at the bed at the foot of that oak tree. And one night, Well, actually, before I get to that, they all essentially decide that that next morning they're going to sneak away with the gold. They're going to take the gold for themselves. Well, in the night, one of them decides that he's going to sneak off to town and he's going to buy some drink and he's going to buy some food and he's also going to buy some rat poison. And the reason why he wants to buy the rat poison is because he wants to poison the other two lawless men and kill them so that he can take the money for himself. He wants all the gold to himself. But the other two, while he is gone, also want the gold to themselves. And so they plot this elaborate plan to stab him to death once he gets back. And that's exactly what they do. He gets back with the drink, with the food, and he's killed. And what do those two lawless men do to celebrate? They take the drink that he came back with and they drink it all down they too also die. So the old man was right. All three greedy men found death under that tree. And like the pardoner's tale from the Canterbury Tales, Jesus' parables are full of surprises. Surprises like any good story that lead us or leave us on the edge of our seats. And that's what we actually find in the parable of the wedding feast. It's a wedding reception that somehow ends with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not a description I would have wanted my wedding reception to have. So let's read that in Matthew chapter 22 verses 1 through 14. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament if you want to turn open with us. Same book we were in last week. Verses one through 14. It says this. <clears throat> and again Jesus spoke to them in parable, in a parable, saying, "The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call, to call those, or excuse me, to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come." Again, he sent other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the king's servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops, his army, and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Verse 9, go therefore to the main roads, underline that, I'm going to come back to what that means later, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the road and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. We're in a series right now called Welcome to the Upside Down, where we are talking about what it means to live as if the kingdom of heaven has come down to earth. And tonight, we're going to be talking about this idea of the wedding feast. We're going to be saying, like, who is invited to this wedding feast, and what in the world does what we just read mean? Because when I think of a wedding reception, when I think of a wedding feast, I certainly don't think about it ending in weeping and gnashing of teeth. So before we dive in, I just want to pause and say that I'm well aware that some of you may even be asking what in the world a parable is. So if at the beginning of that portion of scripture, it says that Jesus was teaching them again in parables. And so he's telling this parable. And so I'm going to tell you what that means. I'm going to summarize them super quickly. A lot of you might think you know what a parable is, but your understanding is incorrect. Or a lot of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Or if you already know what it is, just listen anyways. It's a good reminder. So... Parables. Essentially, they are stories that Jesus told that are not true stories, but they are stories with true meaning. So they are stories that Jesus told that are not true stories, but they are stories with true meaning. Another way of saying it is that they are earthly stories with heavenly meaning. They are meant to be difficult to understand, forcing you to, quote, unquote, crack the code on what their meanings are. And so, Matt, how do you crack these codes? Well, one of the Holy Spirit's roles in your life, the Christian, if you know Jesus and have accepted his forgiveness in your heart, is to make clear the meaning of Jesus's words for your life. So parables are meant to be difficult to understand and the Holy Spirit's role in your life is to open your eyes to understand what it is that Jesus is saying. Now, to be clear, it has nothing to do with your personal intelligence. You're like, Matt, I'm not that smart. I can't crack the code. That's not what it's about. Let me tell you, Jesus' followers were fishermen from the Sea of Galilee. They were considered to be Like the dumbest of the dumb. And yet they were the only ones that understood what Jesus was saying. It has nothing to do with your personal intelligence and everything to do with your passion for understanding Christ and the Bible. So what is a parable? It is a not true story with a true meaning. And they are meant to be difficult to understand. And so as you read that and you're like, I don't get it. What is Jesus saying? Well, Tonight, we're going to crack that code of Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, and we're going to decipher through the Holy Spirit what it is that Jesus is telling us followers of Jesus in the parable of the wedding feast. I screwed this up really hard. What's that kind of drink of water? Turn to your neighbor and um, say, uh, Matt told me to say something to you because he needs to take a drink of water. Praise God. (coughs) Okay, the parable of the wedding feast. The story that we just read, I'm going to break it down into two scenes. And in each scene, there are going to be multiple acts. So in scene one, there are three acts. You're going to see them on the screen. And scene two, there is one act. You'll see that on the screen also. And so scene one, act one, the invitation. God patiently and persistently invited people to this banquet. So when we read this starting verse 1 or starting verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So the king represents God. Take a guess who the son represents. Jesus. What's the best answer? In any church setting, when someone says, take a guess, Jesus, God, it all works. Jesus, Jesus here is the son. The servants are the ones who go to the people and invite them to the wedding. The servants, you might think, are us, but in this story, the servants are not us. We come later. The servants are God's prophets and God's apostles, the people who followed Jesus when he was living. And they're going to Israelites. So this is what's happening in the invitation. Act 1, God sends his servants to go and invite God's people to the party. And what do they do? They say no. And then what does God do next? Does he give up on them? No. He invites them a second time. He says, they did not respond to my invitation. Go again this time. Tell them that I have killed the fat calf. Tell them that my son is getting married and I want them to come. These prophets and apostles, these servants, or as the parable calls them, servants, like I just said, shouted, the feast is ready. Come to the feast. And then in Act 2 we see the rejection. It says this, but they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The servants had invited the people to one of the most fun gatherings someone can be invited to. Not just any wedding reception, Have any of you never been to a wedding reception before? You've never been to a wedding reception? Wow. If it helps, you were originally invited to mine. Okay, guys, there was a pandemic. I mean, it's not, it's not, I mean, I wanted them there. There was a pandemic and I don't like them, but that's okay. Just kidding. Just kidding. Wedding receptions are some of the most fun you will ever have. They are so much stinking fun. The most fun I've ever had in my whole entire life was at my not wedding wedding reception. And at this invitation to this wedding reception, the Israelites say no. And in fact, two groups rejected in two ways. One group paid no attention And the other seized the servants, the prophets and the apostles, which we know is who Jesus is talking about here, and they killed them. So they didn't just say no to the invitation. They killed the ones inviting them. You might be thinking, Matt, what does this look like for us today? Like, what is Jesus saying to us? Well, there are two different types of people who reject this invitation. I want you to think of the average unbeliever. Not like the hostile unbeliever, like the average unbeliever. Most of them don't want the doors to the church locked permanently. Most of them don't want the preachers to stop preaching. Like the average unbeliever isn't coming to grace trying to get us shut down and getting Pastor Troy to never teach again. The average unbeliever just doesn't care to ever walk through our doors or ever listen to what Pastor Troy says. Or maybe in your setting, they don't ever want to come to next and they don't ever want to hear what me, Jake, LB, or Zane ever have to say. They pay no attention because they don't want to change the way they live. And as I was thinking about this, I thought of the rabbit from Alice in Wonderland. You know what I'm talking about? When he's like hopping over those rocks in Alice in Wonderland, which, anyone, have you seen Alice in Wonderland? When I say this rabbit, can you picture who I'm talking about? Like stopwatch thing around his neck. Dude's a baller. He's hopping dexterously like rabbits do so well across a river and he's shouting, I have no time, I have no time, I cannot stop, I have no time. So much of the world is like that stinking rabbit. It's not that they're hostile. It's that they just have hundreds of excuses why they can't stop and listen to what we are saying in the church. They have no interest in participating in what God might have for their life because they're too busy getting on to the next thing. Getting to the Mad Hatter's Tea Party like the rabbit was. See, the average unbeliever isn't hostile against us. They just don't care about anything we have to say. But then there's the other group the group that's hostile, the group that actually goes so far as to kill the messengers. We see that in our world today. We've seen it historically, and when Jesus was talking, he was speaking clearly about the prophets who had been killed for their message and about the apostles who would be killed for theirs. I think of Peter, how he was crucified upside down. I think of Paul, how he was killed while in prison in Rome. I think of Stephen, who was martyred. There are people that are hostile towards our message. They seize God's servants, they treat them shamefully, and they kill them. You might think it's an over-the-top response, but we see, like I said, throughout the history of Christianity, that those who proclaim the good news are oftentimes treated shamefully and even killed for their message. And so in Act 1, God sends people to invite, and in Act 2, the people who were invited reject. And in Act 3, those people who reject are judged. Scene 1, Act 3, the judgment. God justifiably and justly judges. That's what it says in verse 7 when it says, The king who represents God was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those who murdered, or excuse me, and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But if you want to go deep into this portion of scripture, you will see that Jesus is actually referring to when Jerusalem was completely ravaged by the Roman army. Jesus is saying, your city was destroyed because you rejected the message of the prophets. Now you think, how would the Jewish people hearing this react? See, God had been and is gracious. He is throwing a party for the Israelites to come participate in. Twice he invited them. But God's patience runs out when they reject the king, his sons, his servants, and his invitation. All that left them with God's righteous anger and wrath. It's important to remember that God gets angry. He's not a God that's just like, oh, you sinned again. Bummer. Shoot. There's always next time. No, he actually gets angry at our sin. Like, he gets really angry. He's not going to, like, smite you down angry. He's not Zeus throwing lightning bolts. But he does get angry at your sin. But what does he do? See, there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from scene one in those three acts. But before we move on to scene two, I want to point out perhaps the most important lesson in these first seven verses. Jesus is telling us a lot about who God is in this first scene of his parable. He tells us that God is a king. He is a sovereign ruler. He has a son. Jesus outlines some of the most important theology or beliefs of God that you can have. He shows us that God is gracious, That God is generous. That he invites people to a wedding feast and is patient. He sends out this message and invitation again and again and again. And think about it. Like, he invites, they reject. But what does he do? He invites again. He's patient. Why seek rebels twice? Like, why go to people who have no interest In this celebration, twice, because God is good. So then we go on to scene two. Scene two, act one, the party. Like I said in the beginning, good stories end with surprises, and this is certainly one of those stories. It says this in verses 11 through 14. Or, excuse me, uh, what is it, 8 through 14. I have it wrong in my notes, so i got to read off the screen. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So that's what we just read. They rejected, therefore they're not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to a friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen matt what in the world is god saying well there are two new characters in this scene the king's servants and the wedding feast represent the same persons and party but now there are the attendants and the guests who are from the highways and the byways Finally, we come into the picture. The guests represent the church. The guests represent us. You see, when God sends his servants to the main highways, he is sending his servants to get us. Because we weren't the ones originally invited. The attendants, I'm not going to go deep in this, most people say would be God's angels. Which are very real. That's for another message. P.S., I'm thinking about doing a series on spiritual warfare next year. I think that would be fun. We could talk about angels and stuff then. Let's reread verses 8 through 9 again. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. This is the Great Commission. The king is telling the servants to go to the city streets. Some scholars, and I told you to underline this, say that the phrase main roads would have meant the highway that led outside of Jerusalem to the people that weren't invited into the city. The people that were considered unclean, the people that were Gentiles, the people that were not welcomed into their holy city. Charles Spurgeon calls this road the heathen highways of the world. I love that. The king's servants are commissioned to invite people into the gospel celebration of the Son. And in in the first seven verses, all we saw was rejection. And now finally, we see people accepting the king's gracious offer. It says in verse 10, and those servants went out into the road and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. This place was packed. Jay and I had like 40 people in our backyard tent wedding after party of our best friends, minus Sam, because Sam's one of my best friends, but he wasn't invited. Um, I just had to address it. Cool. (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. And family members. It was the most fun I've ever had, even though Sam wasn't there. (laughs) It was the most fun I've ever had. We had Chipotle. Chipotle. We had a live DJ, like in this DJ, guys, I kid you not, this DJ is considered like the best wedding DJ, whoa, wedding DJ in, in Minnesota, like I'm not just saying that, like he's considered the best, he used to be the main DJ for KDWB, I mean, come on now. He's one of my brother's best friends. He did it for free. So I call him. I'm like, "Dude, we're not having wedding reception anymore. Do you still want to DJ in a tent in my sister-in-law's backyard?" And he goes, "Dude, for sure." And do, it was amazing. No noise complaints. The Lord protected us. It was amazing. It's the most fun I've ever had. Now in this story, imagine it's like 300 million people in a tent in the backyards of heaven. The party goes on, the guests are having a blast, and that's the end, right? Like, everything's good, the story ends nice and happy. Like, they accepted the invitation, and all was good. That's not how it ends. It doesn't end by Jesus saying, And all enjoyed the feast and were filled with the goodness of the gospel, or all who were invited and accepted the invitation lived happily ever after. Instead, we read, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. If you've ever had the notion that parables are simple and fun stories, my hope is that through this story you are learning that that is not true. Because this is sad. This should shatter that assumption. This is neither simple nor fun. So I want to explain a a couple of details. So what is clear is that not everyone who has accepted the invitation to the wedding and shows up to eat gets to eat. Because he didn't. What is also clear is that those who don't show up with the proper wedding attire eventually get thrown out into the darkness. They get removed from the party. But it's important to know, and please pay attention to this, that this is a fair judgment. Like you might be like, Matt, that's weird. You wouldn't toss anyone out from your wedding if they didn't follow the dress code. That's not what's being talked about here because the wedding garment has a deeper meaning. And what we also see is that when the king goes up to him and says, why aren't you wearing your wedding garment? It says the king or he was speechless, not the king. The person who wasn't wearing the wedding garment was speechless. That is interpreted as meaning he had no defense. There was no reason why he didn't wear his wedding garment. He was guilty. And so because he had no defense, he was left alone in the darkness. So it's clear is that it is his own fault that he showed up without the right clothes. However, what isn't clear is the meaning of the wedding garment. So what's that mean? There are tons of interpretations of this, and I'm wrapping up here. I know I'm going along, but there are tons of interpretations of this, and most commentators, modern and ancient, say that the garment means righteous deeds. So the metaphorical wedding garment are the righteous deeds of those who were invited to the party. Like we talked about last week, good works which proceed from faith. That's what righteous deeds are. Good works that proceed from faith. And so this man is judged by his works and he has no works to show. It's as if the king is saying to him, what good have you done in my name? And the guest stands silent. Now I don't want this to cause confusion. So if you weren't here last week, or you weren't listening last week, go back on our YouTube channel, next channel on YouTube, and listen to last week's message where I talk about what it means to have works that proceed from our faith. Because our works do not save us, but our salvation leads to us doing good things as worship. You are not saved based on your good deeds, but you being saved should lead to good deeds. And so this guest that was exiled was exiled, it seems, because he took the invitation but didn't come dressed correctly. You see, his clothing told the king that he didn't care so much about the party, but what he could get at the party. It's like when we take the gospel for ourselves but don't care for the gospel for others. We want to be a part of the party for what it means for us, but we don't want outside people in the party. Like, this is about me. It's not about them. It's about me. I want to stand out. Friends, who is invited to the wedding feast? You are. But there's a dress code. It's not a hard dress code to abide by, but it does require something of you. Jesus is saying that those who are invited to the feast are welcomed if they come clothed in righteousness. Not a clothing of righteousness that grants admittance into the party because the exile got in without it. but a clothing of righteousness that says to the king that you take seriously his commands. So this is my last statement, and then we're going to go to small groups. If you walk away having heard one thing tonight, let it be this. To wear the wedding garments means to conform your life around the gospel. To wear your wedding garments means to conform your life to the gospel to live as gospel people in an upside-down kingdom, to conform your, ra- your life around the gospel means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and strength first. And then, out of love to your neighbor, serve them as you love yourself. You're invited to the wedding party. Jesus' message to us is that you have been invited. Will you come prepared? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Be with us as we go to small group. We praise things in your name. Amen.